as far as Buddhist-based uh, organizations and groups in the United States, that's a very, very old tradition. <laughs> so, uh, and again, for anyone whom I haven't met, uh, I'm a member of the Teachers' Council and have had long-time interest both, maybe I shouldn't say both, but in traditional practice, also backgrounds in... Uh, uh, Tibetan traditions, some in uh, Zen, also been influenced by indigenous traditions, uh, Native American particularly, and also uh, Jewish and Christian traditions especially. So, And then uh, have an interest in the intersection of meditation with uh, psychology and also with uh, social service and social change work some of my background. So I want to welcome people here uh, for the first time. Uh, if, you, if you're here for the first time on the Wednesday, if you could maybe raise your hand and say your name and where you live. Maybe start on this side. Hi. Hawaii. Welcome. Yeah. And please, yeah. My name is Julia. I'm in Massachusetts. Yeah. What part of Massachusetts? Uh, Arlington, outside of Boston. Oh, yeah. I lived in Arlington Heights once. That's very nice. Yeah, I know it. I, I know the public transportation system well. <laughs> Thank you. And anyone else here? Please. Yeah, welcome. Hi. Welcome. Yeah. Hi. From Maine. Yeah. What part? Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. And on this side, yeah. Hi. From San Francisco. Yeah, hi. Welcome. Yeah. So our, our usual format is I'll do a few more announcements now, or a few announcements, and then we'll have about a eight or ten minute uh, break and we come back. Uh, about 11, a little bit before 11, there'll be a talk and discussion. That's our usual format. Uh, if you come when Sylvia teaches, it's either I or Sylvia typically. Sylvia doesn't have a break. So enjoy it. <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes we do small groups, but typically the format is talk and some discussion. And I should say also that all the talks on Wednesday mornings are recorded and they're available to listen to on the website dharmaseed.org, D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D.org. So uh, today's talk will will go on there and many talks from the pastor there. Uh, Let's see, so uh, other announcements. Uh, As usual, on the back table, I have some materials. I have my own teaching schedule for the next, actually for most of the rest of the year. Uh, and a reading list, and a few flyers for upcoming events. Uh, April 7th, uh, teaching on transforming the judgmental mind, uh, right here. And that'll be a day long. And we typically do a a follow-up group uh, for people who want to work with that uh, issue over time. Because for most people, all of those issues are not dealt with in one day not fully resolved. So I'm sorry. But that's how it works. So 
And then uh, another uh, two-day offering is uh, in May, May 18th and 19th. I'm co-teaching a two-day training on connecting our practice with working with conflict, both inner conflict and outer conflict. And that's going to be co-taught with a friend named Stephen Folder, who's visiting from Israel, where he's done a lot of frontline work trying to work with the, you know, the major conflict there, collaboration with Palestinians and so forth. So we're going to do two days on working with conflict and connecting with inner practices. And then uh, I also have a flyer out for uh, a retreat that's not happening until August, which is a seven-day non-residential retreat on our sixth day with Oren Sofer on speech practice, which is a lot of fun. And so we do, we, we go nine to five uh, for six days in a row. In the evenings, you get to go home and test out how you're doing. So the, the flyer is there and it's a great place in Berkeley, it's in Berkeley and there's plenty of parking. So it's a nice, it's in a, it's a good place. It's also near public transportation. And uh, it does tend to fill up, so be, if, be aware of that. You know, we have room for about 45 people. Okay. So any other announcements? Hi. Thank you. Any other announcements? Great. So let's come back. Let's aim to come back uh, right at 11. Come back a little bit before. I'll ring some bells here. There'll be a bell rung in the bookstore. And we'll, we'll start with the talk at 11.
As people are coming in, we have a few announcements that we didn't make. Yeah. Just a quick announcement, a little change to the plan with uh, the chairs. We were asked to leave uh, the chairs on the sides and put away only the chairs in the center for an event later today. Also, please leave the mats and cushions in front. Leave the yeah. mats and cushions, and you say leave, just uh, take away the chairs in the center? center. In the center. Just put away the chairs in the center and leave the chairs on okay. the side. Great. And then I had... Uh, I forgot to announce that I have, uh, as usual, some copies of the book that I did on connecting inner work with social service and social change. I usually bring that. I have a few copies out on the table if you want to take a look. I think we don't have quite everyone from back from outside because I know our are in the bookstore bell ringer is not back yet. We have to honor her. There she is. Okay. We okay? Not too many people? Okay, good. Last week, I gave a talk that was partly to honor the poet Mary Oliver, who lived most of her life in Massachusetts, and I think around Provincetown, if I remember right, on Cape Cod. And she, had, she died, as many of you know, uh, in January. And I wanted both to honor her and to explore a theme that uh, could be seen in one of her poems, uh, a poem called The Journey. And so last time, a week ago, I explored, and many of you were here, I explored the theme of the stages of the spiritual journey. And I used as reference points the Mary Oliver poem called The Journey, and we had copies last time. And I have, still have some. If anyone wants one at the end, I can give you a copy of that. I'm not going to go so much into the poem uh, today, but we did extensively last week. We used the poem as a reference point. We also used the life of the Buddha and his journey as one of our reference points. And we uh, also used our lives, as reference points. 
So we, we wanted to see how do these stages map out into our own experiences. And I mentioned some of mine and the group uh, members uh, shared a lot of the ways that some of these stages seem to make sense for, uh, for each of us. And so what I want to do today is to go a little bit further. At the end of last session, I invited people to, if you could, have a sense of where are you in terms of these stages? Do some of these stages seem to be what are there for you right now? And if so, what practices help you to, as it were, continue on the journey? And so today I want to look more specifically at each of the stages and very uh, clearly and specifically say here are some practices that we do with each of these stages. So that's, that'll be my focus and it'll be, the invitation will be to take from the talk uh, a sense of what resonates most with you in terms of where you situate yourself. And of course, uh, as you'll see from exploring the, the different stages, uh, we may actually be in multiple stages at once or go through all the stages in the course of a day. So I'll, I'll hope to make that uh, clear. So that's what I want to do today. So I thought I would start by uh, just outlining the stages. And again, these were made in reference to the poem, where I think you can find the stages in the poem, in reference to the life, the historical life of the Buddha, or life of the historical Buddha, and then in reference to our own experiences. So I had seven stages. The first, taking life for granted. Having our lives be organized by the ordinary and the habitual where we really don't think about much else than how everyday life has been organized for us, maybe by our families, by our culture, by our communities. And so this, may, this is certainly a way of life that all of us come through. You know, especially as children, uh, you know, we may not question things for a long time. And again, for the Buddha, this was how he was brought up, brought up in an extremely sheltered way by royal parents who had been given a prophecy that your son will either be a great ruler or a great sage. And they thought that the way to ensure uh, the first possibility, which was their preference, rather strongly. <laughs> uh, as I said last time, they more or less wanted him to continue the family business. <laughs> and, and so they thought that the way to do that was to shelter him and to shelter him from any sign of negativity so that he continually had only pleasure no sign of human suffering. He said later, I was most delicately brought up. And so in a very sheltered environment, ordinary. Now for us, some of us may have some aspects of shelter, some maybe difficulties, but the first stage is that we're really taking things 
for granted, more or less. There are no other horizons than those given to us. The second stage is when we have some sense, it could be of unsatisfactoriness of what we were given or presented or the quote-unquote normal way of life. We may have some uh, questions, some sense that there might be something more or something better, some or maybe some way of uh, living in accordance more with our deeper values, something comes up and we take for, uh, we don't anymore take for granted what we've been given. We have questions. Again, it could be for different reasons. For some people it would be, uh, there might be uh, some kind of difficulty, pain, suffering, loss. You know, a death triggers something and we say, you know, what's going on here? How do I want to live? Right, And so that second stage is that something comes in, you know, in some way uh, difficulties or pain or suffering may poke a hole in our uh, taken for granted way of living. And the third stage can be quite related. Uh, uh, This is the call for something more. You know, there's some, we have a sense that we want to go beyond the horizons of life that we were simply given. Again, by family or culture or community. Uh, We want something more. And again, this can be quite related to what I'm calling the second stage where we have questions develop. We may, you know, we may say, uh, you know, there's so much pain, suffering, injustice in the world how do I live in a just society or help bring it about? Or we may be called to different uh, kinds of uh, deeper meaning, right? You know, is, you know, people are nasty to each other. Can I live with love and compassion and understanding, right? And again, some of that, that call for something more may be awoken in us, uh, by different experiences. Last time people mentioned experiences of loss that they had that sort of uh, led to a kind of questioning or what's going on. Or people mentioned uh, also being uh, witness to injustice. That's something like opened up. I shared some of my stories where that was the case. You know, where I went to elementary school uh, in Maryland with a recently desegregated uh, community. So I went to school with a lot of black kids and when I would go to where they lived, there were not paved roads, there were shacks. And it was uh, like for a six-year-old, seven-year-old, like, what's going on here? You know. And so things open up, right? Things can open up in that way. And for the Buddha... Uh, There are the stories in the text of what are called the four heavenly messengers that arrived to shake him out of his slumbers, so to speak. And he used, of course, he used that metaphor of being asleep. Uh, That was probably the main metaphor that he later used for the whole notion of spiritual development, to awaken. You know, we're using another one, which is to go on a journey. And so for the Buddha... 
somehow he had some intuition to leave the palace. And he did so on four successive nights. And the story is, very archetypal story, the story is that one night he saw someone who was ill. Hadn't seen that before. You know, what is this? Don't we just sort of live well, go to the gym, eat healthy food and have a wonderful life? What's going on? He saw someone who was ill. The next night he saw someone who was dying. The next night he saw a corpse. And he was shocked, right? What is this life about? Do we just live, have pleasure, and then die? And it was uh, shocking for him to see the unsatisfactory quality, the negative, the unpleasant aspect of life. At times he hadn't known that. He was shocked. And then on the fourth night, he saw a wandering spiritual seeker. We would say a yogi who was wandering. He said, what is this? What is this person? And it uh, led to him deeply, deeply questioning uh, his previous life. And again, something analogous maybe for many of us. And then the fourth stage that I mentioned was the departure from the ordinary and the habitual. For the Buddha himself, this was actually physically leaving his home and going on a search that lasted for six years. You know, for us, the departure from the ordinary and the habitual may be to meditate. Maybe it's not a physical departure, maybe we don't go anywhere or we don't go anywhere much, but we, uh, as it were, the departure is more internal. And we, we try to live in a different way, or we have, you know, maybe we have, we go to certain classes or workshops, or we come to Spirit Rock, or we go on a retreat. But in some way, we start on a, a journey. Again, it may be more of an inner journey, an outer journey, maybe both. You know, I know for myself, it's been both, you know, that I've gone away physically, traveled at times to Asia a few times, gone to monasteries, gone on retreats. So sometimes it's physically taking that journey, but a lot of it is more inner. And so you don't, in a sense, go anywhere. Maybe you change some things in your life. You take a different job, start to have different friends when you have different values, but the, the journey may be more, more inner. And for the Buddha, it was outer. He went away uh, for six years, studied with different teachers and so forth. And then uh, what I've called the fifth stage is uh, where, what I, where we really start to find our deeper voice. That's, that's very much the, uh, the metaphor in the poem. In the Mary Oliver poem, she talks about finding your own voice as you leave your house and you go into the world in the storm. And, you, and so the, the poem pointed to the way that the finding of one's own voice can be stormy. The fifth stage is where we may go through challenges or difficulties, right? That the, uh, I presumed when I started meditating that everything would be smooth and linear without pain. And it was for a short time. (laughs) 
And then if anyone had no pain on the spiritual journey, no one here. And so under this fifth stage, I really point to what we might call the purification process or whatever we want to call it, the learning process, the working with our challenges, with our stuff, you know, where we, where we do the, can do this in all sorts of ways. That we go through a process where we learn, where we come to grips with conditioning, you know, could be all sorts of conditioning, social conditioning, childhood conditioning, a lot of the conditioning just to be a human being. You know, a lot of the ordinary conditioning, we come to grips with that and we go through challenges. And this was, again, very much the sense of uh, what the Buddha encountered. Again, we may have, from not knowing the story so well, we may think that he just sort of went, you know, he left, got enlightened, started teaching. It wasn't like that. He went through difficulties. Not always brought out, but he went through challenges, we could say emotional challenges. He had self-doubt, questioned what he was doing, questioned his teachers, uh, had all sorts of physical difficulties because he, for a long period of time, was on a very ascetic path where he nearly died because he was starving the body. A lot of challenges, you know, and probably we would say certain things were getting worked out, but it was very difficult. So, Again, for us, it may be, uh, there may be various kind of difficulties. The sixth stage, I call the stage of awakening. And for the Buddha, the account is that it was full awakening. And for us, I would say that as we go on this journey, we, we awaken, and it may be, it's typically a partial awakening. Uh, and it, it really then is connected with the seventh stage, which is then we re-enter our everyday world. And when we go on a journey, we typically come back with certain learning, certain gifts that we then apply to our world. We apply to our experience. Uh, now, I think as you're hearing this, you can have a sense that we could go through all seven stages in one day, <laughs> that we could, we could meditate for an hour. We could be with our ordinary mind. We could, we could notice the thought, ah, I should meditate more. <laughs> you know, we could have uh, thoughts that are more equivalent to the second or third stage. We said, you know, or fourth, or we deal with difficulties. And then after, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes of meditation, we come back to our ordinary experience. Right? And so we may go through all, sta- all of these stages in a short time, in an hour, a day. You know, it can be some of us may go on an go on a, a actual physical journey or we do a retreat for a week or two weeks. And I think we could see all of these seven stages in the context of a retreat or we go, even we take a vacation sometimes. Something like, something like that may happen. And we may, or we may primarily find ourselves in one or, one or two of the stages for a protracted period, right? I might find myself really uh, questioning for a long period of time before I have a kind of departure. So 
I'm offering this as partly a kind of a map that can be helpful sort of to sometimes to locate ourselves, you know, where am I on this map? And what I, again, want to do particularly today is to say, what are the practices for each of the stages? And point to those. And so if we say, here's where I am, then what is a skillful way to proceed? And again, I, I want to be stressing how the stages are interrelated, how in actuality, particularly uh, for those of us who may meditate some every day or go on periodic retreats, that there's a way in which we're, we may encounter all or most of the stages every day. But I think the map, as it were, or the, the outline of the stages can be helpful. It can be helpful to uh, look at what we're doing. We don't always do that. We, we sometimes just go about things. Maybe we meditate, try to bring the principles into our lives, but we don't always look carefully. Where have I been? Where am I going? And one of the great um, yogis of the 20th century uh, gave some guidance on this. This is from uh, Yogi Berra. <laughs> For those who don't know the famous Yogi Berra, he was a uh, Hall of Fame uh, catcher for the New York Yankees. Okay, so this is what Yogi said, one of the, the great Yogi. If you don't know where you're going, you will wind up somewhere else. Okay. So he was no doubt, you know, I don't know how he got his name Yogi. Does anyone know? Maybe we can come back to that. Anyway, so I think the, the map can be helpful. So let me go through the seven stages and suggest some practices. So the first stage, again, is that of taking life for granted. And by the way, these are my own stages. This is not a traditional model. This is something that uh, I really came to, especially by reflecting on the poem by Mary Oliver and then connecting it with the life of the Buddha and my own experience. But I think, they, I think it makes sense. And it, you know, you, you'll find different models of the spiritual journey in different places. You know? But I think it, it corresponds... Uh, probably to most of what we find. And I think it, it's, it's a good correspondence in terms of the life of the Buddha as well. So the first is taking life for granted, being with the ordinary and habitual. Now, initially, we take everything for granted. And, um, you know, in a sense, our journey hasn't begun when we're locked into the ordinary habitual. But one of the interesting things is that a large part of our practice, once we've started, once we're actually in stages two, three, and beyond, is that we come back to stage number one and we look very carefully. Have you noticed that when you begin, you know, your quote-unquote spiritual journey, however you understand that, Maybe you meditate, you try to look at your life and behavior carefully. Have you noticed that the ordinary and habitual mind does not go away? Anyone notice that? It's, it's, uh, it's the case. And in fact, a large part of our practice is actually studying in depth the ordinary and habitual mind. So in a sense... We go into stages beyond the first, but we keep coming back. You know, 
some you know, mostly because the ordinary habitual mind uh, doesn't just go away because I'm on a spiritual journey. You know, it has its own momentum. If I've repeated a pattern of thinking, you know, two million times, it's not going to stop quickly, right? Or if I have certain conditioning, certain patterns, certain wounds even, they continue. So a huge part of our practice is watching the ordinary mind and gradually um, working through it. You know, and so we can look at it in all sorts of ways. You know, we, and, um, we can see how the ordinary mind uh, locks us into being semi-conscious or unconscious, right, when we do things. In our habits, remember last time I said um, that according to one uh, neuroscientist, the brain does not like consciousness. <laughs> brain likes habits. The brain likes us being on automatic the brain likes us to just do the same thing all the time with zero consciousness in ways that at least keep us satisfying our basic survival needs. <laughs> That's what the brain likes. And so we go against all those habits. And so a huge part of our practice is looking at some of the modalities of the ordinary mind. And what are those? You know, one of them is, you know, a deep one that's pointed to by Buddhist practice is looking at our sense of self. Looking at our sense of me, of who am I. You know, looking at my ordinary conceptions. Looking at my patterns around self. Looking at my whatever, my self-image, how I present myself, how it appears in meditation, my forms of reactivity, my preferences... Again, we're not trying to so much get rid of that, but we study it closely. We look at the patterns of self. We look at what takes us away from being present and aware. And a lot of it is self-preoccupation. Or we look at the patterns of continual repetitive thinking. We study that. That's ordinary mind. You know, we look at, we, we look at that. We look at the sense of uh, an external world. We look at the way that we take for granted our sense of things being there and external. That's ordinary mind. As we go deeper into practice, some of what uh, we have in ordinary mind doesn't quite look the same. We see the way that we, in a sense, as we go deeper, actually construct the world. And we construct this, you know, with our culture, we construct a sense of self that gets organized, right? And that's something we keep on coming back to look at. You know, initially we just see, probably when we first start practicing, we use mindfulness and we just see what are my, what are my habitual patterns of, of mind? And I've mentioned uh, last time, I think quite a few times, that when I first started doing mindfulness practice, what was particularly striking for me was noting my planning mind, my habits of planning. You know, I've mentioned often I come from a, f a family of planners. My sister actually has an advanced degree in planning. <laughs> she got a degree in city planning and she makes her living as a health planner. Very nice. Planning, very important. <laughs> uh, but we, you know, we're a, 
a family of planners, you know. It was often the case when we would uh, get together, when the kids had gone away, you know, from the home and we would all get together. Before we would even say, hello, how are you doing? We would plan when we would be getting together again. You know, planning was strong, right? So one of my, you know, first learnings in meditating, oh, I plan all the time. My mind's going like that. And that's a lot of what we learn. We know, oh, we learn, oh, I have this habit. Oh, I have that habit. Oh, look at that. Because if you had asked me before meditating, do you plan a lot? I probably would have said the ordinary amount, which was not true. Right? I, didn't, I wasn't really in touch with how much I planned. And so a lot of what happens in mindfulness is that we see how the mind works. We see our ordinary mind. And it's not always flattering. How many people have noticed that initial mindfulness experience is not always flattering? <laughs> you see stuff, you know. The teacher, um, Chagyam Trungpa, the Tibetan teacher, he said that uh, self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that was, whether that was said on the basis of a, you know, a peer-reviewed empirical study. But uh, some of what we find is not so, not so flattering. And so, you know, that's what I found. A lot of my power. I also started to notice when I was first meditating, I'm not very aware of my body. My habit was to be thinking all the time. You know, I was actually a student at the time, so in some way I was supposed to be thinking all the time, right? But uh, I noticed that habitual mind. I was not aware of my body. Also, I couldn't access my emotions very well. I started to notice that, right? So we notice, this is what we initially learn. In our meditation, we learn the habits. And then we can go deeper, looking into some of the other areas I mentioned, the sense of self. And so a lot of our practice is, so it's helpful to know that our everyday practice actually has, almost as a central part, continuing to study the ordinary mind. Continuing to study our habits, our patterns, and then going more deeply into looking at the nature of a self, how we construct the world, you know, one f- form of ordinary mind that I work with a lot with people is to notice that sense of being a doer. You know, we often, you know, a lot of our lives are set up so we're doing things, you know. You know, we have a lot to get done and so we're continually doing. Let me do this. Okay, let me make a plan. Let me do this. Let me do this. Let me do this. And there's often not much sense of mindfulness there. We're just locked into, let me do this. Let me get this done. And that's, that's, a, that's part of the ordinary mind. In the long run, it's possible to, quote-unquote, do things with a sense of presence and flow and not that sort of tightness of mind around a doer. Of course, again, the doer gets a lot done. That's very important. Yeah. Last week, I worked on my taxes. A lot of doing mind. Very important. Very Got things done efficiently. Very good. Right? But uh, this is all what we look at. We look at the doer. We look, uh, and we can even go further and start to look at our, our ordinary notions of time and space. You see, so it can go deeply. We can look at all the core constructions of the ordinary mind. That's, as we go deeper, those become part of our practice and becomes fascinating. How do I construct time? You know, how do I construct the past and future? Maybe we'll come back to that 
and look at that in some more depth here because it's really fascinating and to look at that and when we when we try to stay in the present moment as we do typically with our mindfulness we'll notice how we go off to the past and future we can study that some so i want to bring the second and third stages together when in terms of talking of practices the second stage is where something uh there's some sense that the everyday life is not quite adequate or there's some question or there's some problem. And the third is that there may be a call for something more. And again, it could appear in different ways. You know, you might hear about mindfulness and say to yourselves, I'm not really present a lot of my life. I want to be more present. That would fit in the second and third stage where it might be ethical in nature. You might say, a lot of the people around me are not so ethical. I want to be ethical. How do I live? How do I deal with being in this whatever job or whatever? It could be, it could be an ethical challenge or a challenge, as I was mentioning, about justice or something like that. Or it could be that you have, uh, we have certain experiences that open us up to some deeper love or compassion or insight or way of seeing the world. And we say, gosh, I want that more. You know, how do I get there? And so in the uh, second stage, second and third stage, which I'm bringing together, you know, the question arises, it's not quite adequate, on, that's two, and three is the call for something more. Um, it's really, you know, one practice we can do is really to honor your own questions. You know, we have these questions, remember, Last time I talked about we can hear the call for something more many, many times. And typically, we hear the call, I want something more in my life. We hear it, I say, okay, I'm going to do that. And then we go back to the ordinary. So the call comes many, many times. I joked last time that we could hear the call to something deep and wonderful, you know, for the first time, for the eighth time, for the 932nd time and still not do much, right? So one way of practicing is really be sensitive to that part of yourself which wants something deeper. And see, you know, it may come in a quiet moment, on a vacation, it may come in meditation, it may come through dreams, it may come through being really moved by someone else, hearing something, it may come from reading, but to really listen for that deeper voice. You know, what the uh, Quakers call the still small voice. Listen for that voice. You know, I like to call it sometimes, listen for your own voice of truth. And it's hard because there's a lot of static, isn't there? A lot of information, a lot of stuff we're getting through the media. Can I, how can I listen for that deeper voice? And again, one of the reasons many of us will meditate or go on retreats is that we get some distance from the ordinary stimuli, the habitual information, and we can hear that voice more clearly. So it may, it may lead you to say, let me, let me do what I can where I can maybe hear that voice more. <clears throat> it could also be to recognize that some of this may come through difficulty or loss, or pain, or our own suffering, or the suffering of those near us. 
and to be sensitive that sometimes those losses bring openings and to be aware of that and to sometimes listen for what might be a gift of something difficult. Just to be aware of that in the positive time um, or just to be aware of that in a difficult time, I should say. Uh, also, it'd be, be aware of your, not just the difficult voices, but the voice that wants something more. A lot of times we'll put that down ourselves. We'll say that's unrealistic, you know. And so it's, to, again, to honor the voice that uh, maybe has that spirit of wonder or mystery, curiosity, wanting to go deeper. Really, um, when that comes up, honor it. See what it says. See what it wants to say. Really give some room for it. Another practice might be to remember what woke us up in the past and to give room for that, you know. The fourth stage is the stage uh, that I call the stage of departure. And again, the differences between the stages may be more matters of emphasis. There may be each of these stages, uh, as I mentioned, they may interpenetrate each other in certain ways. But certainly for the Buddha, the departure was very marked. He went away physically. And that's, that's also the metaphor used in the poem. Um, I'm using this fourth stage to be the point where we start at least in the path that we follow here at Spirit Rock, path of developing mindfulness, wisdom, you know, compassion, and so forth, this might be the point, the fourth stage, might be the point where we actually take up our core practices. I take up a practice and I try to be regular at it. And I try to bring it into my life as much as possible. So this is where we have a sense of the, uh, you know, of the core practices that are important for developing further. You know, and we have a pretty wide range of practices. We have, you know, as I mentioned early in the uh, initial sitting, we have the practices that develop samadhi, we, that stabilize the mind, the practices that help us have better sustained attention. Really crucial, we're really distracted. So one practice is the practices that develop more concentration, crucial to develop those. A, a second is the uh, whole area of mindfulness, to be more present, to see clearly what's happening. These are the practices we sometimes call insight. There are the heart practices that develop more kindness and compassion and joy. And that these are our core practices, a part of our core practices here. We may develop those. We may also say, I'm really disconnected from my body. A fourth area practice may be having a body practice. It could be doing yoga or qigong, trying to really be aware of the body as much as possible. Really crucial for those of us with Western conditioning. Because we're largely, the exceptions to this, but the conditioning is largely not to be so aware of our bodies. You know, that short story from James Joyce where it says, uh, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> right? We're, and, and so body practices were crucial for me. Many different kinds of them. All of these are crucial. And then how do we start to apply all of this in daily life? 
a whole other area of practice and emphasis, right? And, you know, you're hearing basically the outline of the set of practices which when we go more deeply into it, we actually may be doing some version of all of these. Maybe not at the same time, of course, but over time, or we may emphasize them more. We may also be called to work with psychological issues. You know, in the West, there's an integration of working psychologically with the practices I mentioned. For most of us, some psychological work is important. And I bring this in here by giving a lot of emphasis to the theme of transforming the judgmental mind, which gets at, can get at a lot of our childhood conditioning, self-judgment and so forth, right? Um, and then we also, I think, in a complete path, we'd also work through our social conditioning. So I hope you're not getting tired hearing all these areas, but this is, this is, this is the map of practice, right? We want, you know, we all have social conditioning around race and gender and sexual orientation and age and religion and educational level, and it affects us, right? They're habitual, the part of a habitual mind is around our social conditioning. How do we work through that, right? And so I think at this fourth stage, we get interested in developing. Maybe, and we, you know, we don't do all those at once, you know, and maybe over many years we touch, start touching them and we may only work with one or two of them for a given year or two or three. You know, my major practices from my first five years were pretty much uh, uh, developing more stability of mind and mindfulness. That was it, kind of my first five years. And, and coming back to the body. Was those, those were my core practices. And so then the, the fifth stage is uh, where, you know, where I've placed kind of working with the challenges. And so this is where we might actually know that working with some of our personal difficulties or things that come up in life is fully part of the path, fully part of the journey. And that we can have different tools, meditative tools, other kinds of tools, to work with challenges that come up, inner challenges, outer challenges, relational challenges, challenges at work, and so forth. And this is sort of where I'm placing that, that we can have a lot of different ways. And that may be an emphasis for us right now. Some of us, it may be, oh, I'm really working with that tendency of mind. And you can see how with each of these, we also keep coming back to working with the ordinary mind. Right? In each of these stages, a lot of the stages are really sort of let us look in a different way at our our usual conditioning. And so maybe in this fifth stage, we work with the challenges of life. We work with difficulty, uh, grief that comes up, and so forth. And we also open to the beauties, right? The fifth stage isn't just about difficulty, but it's about opening to greater uh, love, wisdom, compassion, wonder, sense of mystery, connection with others. And I think it's the, that goes hand in hand with working with difficulties. That we actually, we learn those beautiful qualities probably most profoundly when we go through the difficult situations. I think Thomas Merton has a line where he says, love is only learned in the moment when the heart turns to stone or after the heart is turned to stone. That's where we go through the bigger learning. And then the sixth stage, 
We got there, awakening, yay. <laughs> and so in all of this process, we have insights, we see things. You know, every moment that we just are with the breath and know we're with the breath, that's a moment of awakening. One teacher that I met uh, a long time ago, he, the teacher of Joseph Goldstein named Monindraji, he had a phrase where he said, breathe and know that you're breathing and the whole spiritual path opens up from there. Right? And so we, we have, a, you know, just to be aware and present, that's a moment of being awake. And we just try to bring more and more awakening into our lives. And some of it's gradual and some of it is immediate. Sometimes we gradually become more awake and sometimes we just have this moment of awakeness or some, something breaks through at times. It can really occur in different ways. The Buddha said, knowledge is achieved by gradual training, by gradual practice, by gradual progress. And there are also moments when we have a more, a more sudden awakening. And so question is, how do you bring those moments of awakening into daily life? How can I be more present in this activity or that activity? You know, it's a lot of what we teach when we teach speech practice. How can you be awake with the more complex activity of talking or giving a talk? <laughs> right? How do you do that? You know, how can you be present and awake uh, doing the dishes? You know, we learn in the simplified training situation of meditation, but we want to bring that quality of being awake into everything. That's the direction. How do you do that? That could be a practice, you ask. And maybe you emphasize one thing. Okay, I'm going to do daily meditation, and I'm going to do these two daily activities and try to be awake there. Maybe, okay, every time I'm doing the dishes or cooking, I'm going to try to be present. Okay? I mean, we take initially everyday situations which are the easiest. We don't start with the hardest. The hardest for me is bringing awareness and mindfulness to being on the computer. There hasn't been yet a spiritual guide to being on the computer. That's been published. I think, I think maybe in a few years. But very interesting to me to, to do that. But we find, what are the easier situations? Maybe it's every time you take a walk, you do walking meditation. I think that was one of my first. I was a student in Boston, and... Uh, I took public transportation all the time. I did a lot of walking, didn't have a car. And I, uh, was, in, I was a meditator and I was frustrated. I didn't have enough time to meditate. All of a sudden I had the brilliant insight. Every time I'm walking, I'll do meditation. I'll do walking meditation. Suddenly I had an hour more every day. Right? Maybe you do that. Maybe you walk and you do the dishes and that's how we bring awakening into daily life. So how do we do that and what supports us doing that? That's seventh stage is where we bring that awakening into daily life. And we, we bring the gifts, the insights. What's going to help us do that? Maybe for some of us it's daily meditation or it's having a teacher, a regular teacher, a mentor, having friends, being part of a group, a community. What are the supports that help me to keep on bringing my practice into daily life? What helps? You know, 
one practice that I've mentioned that I've been doing most of the last 35 years is doing a Sabbath practice where one day a week I go away from the ordinary. You know, and I don't always do it the whole day, but I do it at least uh, half a day. You know, and some people I work with, they do it for three hours. A little bit like going to church or synagogue or mosque or whatever. And so we, we ask, what's going to help? And so the, the whole journey, the whole set of these seven stages, actually go, we go through a process, but we end up only coming back to what? Being right here and as awake as possible. That's, that's this journey. Being right here as awake as possible. And all of what's been mentioned in terms of seeing the stages and asking what practices are good for me you know, if I'm primarily working at this stage, it's all for that purpose, to come back, to be able to come back and be present. So I think I'll just read, uh, there's a famous uh, passage from the Zen tradition about how we, we start, it's kind of a version of these seven stages without stages. Okay, so this is from uh, the Zen tradition. I and mean, what you'll listen, you'll basically hear three stages. You know, ordinary life, and then seeing things differently, and then coming back to the ordinary, but in a different way. It's kind of like the ordinary becomes extraordinary. Okay, so here it is. Before I had studied Zen, I saw mountains as mountains, and rivers as rivers. Okay, that's the ordinary. Okay. When I arrived at a more intimate knowledge, I came to the point where I saw that mountains are not mountains and rivers are not rivers. It's the middle parts of the middle stages. But now that I have got the very substance of the teachings, I am at rest. For it's just that I see that mountains are once again mountains and rivers are once again rivers. I think I'll end with that. It's, uh, I gave a somewhat linear model and we end with a non-linear expression of the same thing. So let's just sit for a moment and just see for yourself what, what applies to you. What practices uh, apply to you? What stage do you think or what stage or stages do you most uh, connect with? And given that, what practices are the most important for you right now? And then how might you keep them going, let's say, in the next week?
So thank you for your kind attention and for having patience through all these seven stages. So we have some time now for any questions or reflections or uh, requests for clarification, really anything. And we have microphones, so you can wait for the microphone to come to you. You can just raise your hand and the microphone will come to you. Any question or reflection or could be a sharing of one of the stages yourself. Yeah, please, on the end here. So I found, I found myself planning how I might be mindful each day for the next seven days. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? <laughs> Why not? Yes. <laughs> the short answer is yes. And I, I hope I didn't, I, I think I was clear, but I hope I didn't put down planning too much. But yeah, the, now if you, if you only plan, you know, it's very possible to keep on planning for the future, right? If this is, uh, you know, very common in our culture, right? That we, we plan to get to this point where we plan to get to this point where we plan to get to this point so I can finally retire and do what I really want to do, but we, then by the time we've retired, we forgot what we really wanted to do. So, um, But yeah, so the planning is important, just, uh, yeah, and then how to implement the plan. So, But it, yeah, I, I appreciate the humor. <laughs> yeah, please. I wasn't here last week, so that's a disclaimer, because as I started to meditate today, my intention was that I noticed I keep, going back to sleep yeah. you know i i uh, always like that roomy yeah i don't know if you're familiar i don't know the whole thing but i always remember the important part is don't go back to sleep yeah. the world is all these wonderful things and so this was very helpful to me today because what i was feeling is kind of a loss of a freshness or a distinction yeah. in my practice that yeah. it was just easy to say oh yeah i should be doing this now but i mean you know if, if i were not should but if i were being more mindful, I would decide not to have another cookie or, you know, something like that. And then just going, oh, but I want that cookie. So it, it, but the, for me, the part was recognizing, not so much whether I had the cookie or not, but recognizing that I was um, disregarding the opportunity and looking at that desire as opposed to just saying, no, I just want it. So right. anyway, this was very helpful. Great. To really yeah. Things for yeah. Me. So, so the kind of two major uh, themes I think for me were raised by your, your reflections. Um, one of them is to how do you, how do we keep our practice fresh? And, you know, hopefully one of the possible uh, fruits of a talk like this is that it can help freshen practice, right? Because it's really crucial to stay fresh. It's very easy for our sense of mindfulness to become itself habitual. It's really like to get organized by habitual mind, in other words. You know, I think you were pointing to some ways that can occur, you know. And um, how do we keep it fresh? One of the ways we keep it fresh I think you were pointing to the second the second point I wanted to bring out is to really have some curiosity 
And we would, from a technical point of view, we would call this inquiry. It's one of the factors of awakening. Can I have curiosity about my experience? That I notice that I want a cookie. I don't just tell myself good or bad, but I say, okay, it's basically follow the instructions. Desire for a cookie is coming up. Let me be mindful of it. Let me notice it, right? Rather than just say, you know, get to criticizing oneself or just saying, okay, let's stop meditating. It's time for a cookie, right? You know, so you you can actually, um, what's it feel like to want a cookie? What's going on in the mind and body and heart? That would be a kind of inquiry. Inquiry really helps with freshness, right? Because the aspect of curiosity about one's experience, and it could be the curiosity about how does this, how does my habitual mind work? How does my habitual conditioning work? It's actually really, really interesting to study it. How does time work? How does my sense of, oh, let me look at that. So one of the ways to develop freshness is have curiosity and inquire, you know, and when something comes up, instead of just saying good or bad, but actually look carefully at it. What's going on? You know, not easy, you know, because sometimes when we have that strong inclination, we just want to do it, right? And a lot of times it means being willing to look at something that's not so pleasant. There's a cartoon, actually, somewhat directly related to what you said, which I like a lot. It shows a young meditator, and she's meditating, and she says, today I shall stay in the present moment, unless the present moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. (laughs) Right, and so can I look at the unpleasant, or can I look at that wanting? You know, it's not always easy or pleasant to do that, so we need some energy for that. You know, another way of... uh, Another way of staying, there are a lot of ways to stay fresh. It's a great question to ask, how can I stay fresh? Or how can I be more fresh? You know, So it could be maybe you hear a talk or come here or you work with a teacher or mentor because they, they can help bring that out. Or you uh, do a retreat or something like that. That really helps tremendously. Uh, another one is to uh, just be really aware when the mind is just getting in. There, there's a... I'll just say one more point there. There's a, a very common state of mind which we call sinking mind, which is an occupational hazard for meditators. And it occurs when we're, in, we're kind of in a pleasant, somewhat pleasant state. Kind of pleasant, not very aware, kind of pleasant, a little bit dreamlike. Kind of thoughts, a little bit... And it's, some of us may even think, ah, oh, I've arrived. But it's, but it's actually, uh, again, it actually has a, a low level of awareness, but there's a certain amount of settledness and peace. And it's actually a state of relative confusion. And so we can look out for that. You know? And when that's occurring, we can do something that basically brings more energy into the system. Stand up, you know, maybe walk at that point. So we want to look out for that state. Yeah. Okay. Please, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, and what on that point is that it is for me. It's easy to flop into that habitual mind. Yeah. And even if it's a pleasant, dreamy habitual mind, it's still a habitual mind. And you, the techniques, one of which you taught me, is to break the spell of the habitual mind. Is one is counting 
breath. Yeah. Has a great break it up, break the spell. Yeah. And then, like, body scans can be yeah. really helpful. Yeah. It's just, just because it's funny, you'll get into a, a, a routine with your practice and it's, it becomes routine. That's right. Yeah, thank you. Very, very helpful. Yeah, we, how many of us can relate to that, that there are ways that our practice gets very routine, a little bit rote, not so aware? Yeah, very common. And we, 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 it's great. I think I like your suggestions almost to have some personal, like have personal, almost like a plan. Okay, what do I do when I think I'm in kind of this rote meditation? What can help break it up? And maybe you do this technique, like you do a body scan, or maybe you stand up, or maybe you you count, or maybe you do like, the, you know, you really use inquiry or something like that. But to have two or three ways of, both, you know, of getting out of that, you know, pleasant but not very present state can be really helpful. Yeah. I like your idea. Yeah, please. Of um, taking a, a Sabbath day. Yeah. Because only having a few hours is not quite enough to just get you into a space where you want to make a change. Yeah. So I'm going to work on that one. Great, yeah. Sabbath day has been really crucial for me. And it, it doesn't have to be on a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. It can be, uh, mine is actually today. Wednesday, so I come here off in the morning and then I take the rest of the day and do a kind of a a practice time. I stay here, you know, but uh, I work with a lot of people to develop that Sabbath and it can, it also helps uh, keep the, uh, the intention, it gives some um, priority to what for many of us is most valuable, right? Uh, That, if I once a week, even if it's for three hours, it could be for half a day, could be for a whole day, that I'm, to use contemporary language, I'm unplugged, I'm not doing email or text or whatever. It, you know, to have a regular time when you disengage in that way and just almost like do what nourishes just you, right? Meditate, I, you know, I, I, I often would meditate, uh, take a walk, maybe do some reading, go into the wilderness some and uh, do that for, you know, do that for half a day and have it be the same day every week and it will, it basically helps with the freshness, it helps reinvigorate and it it helps place it. I mean, the reason why something like a Sabbath has been around, you know, in multiple traditions all over the world is that it actually is really helps to keep the priorities clear. And you have to make it, make it, it's also make it something that's even routine and habitual. See, they're very important place for good habits. <laughs> I don't mean to just criticize the routine. You know, good routines are very good. <laughs> okay. Anyone else before we finish? Okay. So let's just sit for a few moments. And again, to uh, come back to how you'd like to take what was most important for you from our time this morning. For many of us, it'd be related to the talk and the stages and the practices. What, what, did I, what do I take from this? But maybe for some of us, maybe you 
could appreciate the talk, but maybe something else occurred to you this morning totally unrelated to the themes and, and that maybe was most important. So let that be there if that's the case. Just be with what's important that helps give you some guidance for the next period of time. What's your intention coming out of the morning? We end with the uh, usual traditional practice called the dedication of merit, where we remember that we practice not just for ourselves, but also for others. And may the benefits of our morning be there for all beings, which includes us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.